Uh, well, w- welcome everybody. Uh, I guess it's 7:30 there where you where you all are. We're we're in Oregon at the moment on the the coast of Oregon, and it's uh, 5:30 here right now, and it's still light out uh, for a bit longer. And um, we're excited to spend the next hour with you talking about uh, burn morels and really how how burn morels work, uh, what they are, what they're not. Um, I'm going to give you some tips if you want to hunt them. I'm curious, uh, and, and again, if you have any questions, uh, it'd be great if you would if you would chat them in here. We'll be watching it. Kristen is watching it too, and she she can help answer these. She knows uh, more about this than I do. Um, she just doesn't like getting in front of the the group and talking as as much as I enjoy it. So. Now, uh, I think I should probably talk a little bit about ourselves uh, before we before we kind of launch into the, the presentation. There, there we are. Um, and we, we live in Colorado and we're, we're web designers. So we're kind of fortunate we can travel around and we have a camper and we we work out of it and we, we tend to chase mushrooms around the country. Uh, depending on the seasons, that's what we're doing out here in, in Oregon right now is working working a little bit and chasing mushrooms in our in the evenings when we have a little spare time. Um, what happened was probably seven or eight years ago, we decided we wanted to go find burn morels in the West. And we uh, um, researched that during the winter, went online, did a lot of Googling and found burns we were going to go visit. And I, I kind of obsessed. So I spent a lot of time researching those and I made the maps of where I was going to go. And we went out and it was pretty cool. We, we drove into this, this, this first burn in Oregon and we stepped out of our car and within a, maybe two minutes, we found a morel. And uh, within a couple of hours, we had filled our basket. It was, it was really pretty cool. Um, and then we did it again. And we did it again and went to some different ferns. And, and the maps really worked. We had kind of figured out where to go. And then we did it a second year. And we went to Idaho as well. And um, I don't know, kind of long story short, uh, people wanted our maps. So I started making maps of the whole Western U.S., that uh, we sell on our website, Modern Forager. They're uh, $40 the first year when you sign up and we give you all the maps. I'll, I'll show you what, how the maps work in a little bit, but th- that's kind of how we got into it. And then uh, we wrote a little book called Burn Morels. It's kind of a more of a magazine really, uh, but it's color. It's got a lot of information in it. Um, that's on our website too, although I'm not gonna be able to ship it for a couple of weeks if anyone orders one, so beware. Um, and, and we go hunt these burns every year in the West. Uh, I think we've visited about 40 burns in the last seven or eight years. And we've had a, a, a lot of success and we've had some failures. And, and frankly, you learn, I think, a lot more from uh, the failures than you do the, the successes in, in these, these burn morales. So that's kind of how we got started. And um, um, meanwhile, uh, we wrote a book this year, which maybe we'll come back and talk to you guys later on, uh, which just came out this week, Wild Mushrooms. Um, it's a cookbook and foraging guide, and it features about 25 different foragers around the country. We interviewed them and we got their recipes and we cooked them up and, and then we, we feature 15 mushrooms. So the recipes are organized by mushroom and we talk a lot about preservation. Uh, we're really into preserving mushrooms and how to enjoy them through the season. And one of your own uh, members is featured in here too. Brooke um, is one of the foragers that we interview and we tell his origin story. And we have a couple of good recipes in here for Brooke. So um, hopefully Brooke will join us here um, later on, uh, but, but he's in there. Um, so enough about that. Uh, I don't, 
Um, so this is us. Uh, you get pretty dirty in the, in the burns. That's why we have dirty faces. And these are our dogs that go with us into the burns. Benzie and Lulu, they love to hunt mushrooms. Um, and um, let me bop into the next slide here and kind of start talking about morels in general. So what I want to do, I want to talk about some morels. I want to talk about burns and kind of big picture stuff. And then we're going to get down and really get kind of into the specifics of, of how you find the mushrooms in the burns. So just big picture morel stuff. You, you know, in, in the Midwest, it's the morel capital um, of the world and every person in Michigan thinks that's in Michigan and everybody in Missouri thinks that's Missouri or in Wisconsin, maybe you think it's in Wisconsin um, or Illinois. Um, I've kind of been to all these places and I'm pretty sure it's out West. Uh, the number of morels they pick out here in the West is, is just crazy uh, mind boggling. And, and uh, the number of buyers that are out here and the, the quantities are huge. Um, but no matter what you go, I've learned a lot about morels and, and here we go. Um, I think from just a forager standpoint, morels are polymorphic. So what that means is they look different. Um, even two morels growing next to each other um, are, are going to look different from each other. Um, so that, that's a really critical thing is to understand how different they look. They're, they're highly predictable. Um, they, they like certain things and you will very rarely find them outside of those, those specific situations. At the same time, they also behave unpredictably and they will surprise you and they will show up when you least expect it. Um, I, I'm really interested in this idea of, of morels, especially, but mushrooms in general, of the, um, um, how do you maximize your, your, your odds of success? And what I hear, for example, is people will say, well, I find morels under my car uh, in March. And you're like, well, that's kind of fun, but that doesn't help me find morels or other people find morels. You can't go looking under your car in March. That's not the secret to success. So I'm really into getting beyond this sense of irony that morels have. Like, you know, you'll step out of your car or you'll hunt for three hours and you'll come back to your car and there'll be one growing right next to your car. Uh, that, that's what I mean by irony. And, and into how do you find the bell curve of morels? How do you increase your chance to, to have success? Um, morels are very diff difficult to classify to the species. Uh, there's 23, 24, 25. I don't know how many in North America. I think, I think the numbers change. And many of them are, are very difficult to get down to the species. That's why we often call them yellow and black. I'm going to talk about the species in a minute for the burn morels. Um, but they're, they're daunting to classify. And um, uh, you have to be kind of a geek to, to, to really get into morel identification, I feel like. Um, now they're mycorrhizal. Some people will disagree with that, um, and and they'll argue that you know they're not. And I I I tend to say, look, if you're hunting morels, it's all about the trees. As a forager, morels are mycorrhizal. End of story. If you're not focused on the trees, then you're not finding the morels. Um, and then finally, um, you know, morels shop local. Um, I, I like this last one because if you go online and you Google how to find morels they'll tell you to go look under apple trees or ash trees um, uh, or maybe elm trees or wherever. And, and the reality is um, that advice is only good in a small area. If you come to Colorado, 
the rules to find morels are completely different. And all the things that you've learned in the Midwest are going to be different in Colorado. Um, and depending on what type of morel you're looking for, totally different habitats and different trees. And when you go further west to the west coast, same thing again, they're, they're going to be different and behave differently. So it's important when you, when you study morels that you kind of got to forget what you know, because that same wisdom that's going to lead you to success in, in you know, northwestern Texas is going to be, uh, uh, or Oklahoma is going to be completely different in the Midwest or in the West. So they, they're, they're very local. Um, and somebody asked if morels associate with Osage orange trees. I have no clue. I don't even know what that tree is. I don't know where it grows. So Hunter, I'm sorry if that, I don't, I don't know, um, and, and what kind of tree that is. So, um, I can't answer that, but I'm going to hopefully answer in the issue of, uh, in burn morels, how they associate. Um, and I am not, by the way, I am not a morel expert. Um, I don't know everything about morels. Um, uh, they're elusive and hard to find the naturals, especially in Colorado. Uh, I, I like, I, I do know a lot about the bird morels though. So that's, that's what we want to talk about today. So sorry, Hunter, I'm not able to answer that. That's a difficult question. Um, so let's talk about burn morels. Um, um, first of all, th th three really uh, ironclad um, rules about them, ex except with the exceptions. Number one is they only grow in conifer forests. End of story, period. Um, they associate with conifer trees. Now you in the Midwest, you'd be like, what? How do they associate with conifer trees? We never see that. Well, th these are different in the West. Um, there has been, I think, one report. Um, I haven't been able to chase it down and prove it or discover more about, about a burn morel growing in a, with a deciduous tree. Um, so I'm going to say they only grow with, with conifer forests. Number two, they only grow in the Western United States. Now, the problem is, is now they've been found in uh, northern Michigan and I believe North Carolina and Georgia as well after forest fires in conifer, I think red pine uh, forests. So they have been found, I think four times in science, scientifically have been found in other burns in the Midwest or the East. Those are the only times they've been found out of the West. I have a hunch as time goes on, we're gonna keep finding in major wildfires that happen in the Midwest or the East, especially in, in conifer forests, we're gonna find more burn morels. Um, but they're, they're not uh, common like they are in the West. Number three, they only grow after a fire. Um, that's what causes the, the burn morels to, to burst out of the ground, let's say. Um, let me just look here. The, 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 I think there is no exception to that, really. Um, uh, they only grow after the fire. Now, what some people say is they'll be like, oh, I found some burn morels. I was at a campground and I looked around the fire pit and there were morels. Those are burn morels and those are, those are not burn morels. Um, I mean, it's true. They were found where there was a burn or if a house burns down, you, you might find some morels. I think what you're seeing in that situation are morels that thrive in disturbances. And we know morels love woods and timbers that have been cut and logging roads through the forest and uh, footprints where animals have writ written, uh, animals have walked, morels will pop up. Um, however, um, and somebody said that, can you find morels after a prescribed burn in Michigan? Absolutely you can um, in, in a prescribed burn or, or, or a wildfire. However, 
probably they're not burn morels. Um, they're just morels that are coming up after a fire. Um, and burn morels are special and they're, they're different. Um, so let, let's look at that. Um, I, got, I got five species for you to look at here. And what we're, what we're talking about are these five species. They're, they're interesting. If anybody has any more information, I do have a link on the screen here. Uh, if you want to research this more, kind of where, where I got my research, because I'm not a mycologist. Um, but the first four species, especially here, are, are of interest. The fifth one is a little mm, arguable, let's say. Um, the first four species of Morcella here, they, they only grow in the West, except for those few exceptions. And it's weird, they only come up after a burn. So if you're out in the woods collecting um, morel samples from all over and you're, you're harvesting them and getting them DNA tested, they're not gonna test as one of these four species of mushrooms. These mushrooms, what it, it really appears they do is they, they hang out with the trees, you know, the roots, I guess, and and the and the bark, and and inside the wood, um, in the ground, and they hang out there for year after year, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, forty years, fifty years. They're just they're there, and when a fire comes through and torches the forest, it's like a signal, and these mushrooms pop, and they will only pop after the fire. They might do it for a year or two, maybe three, um, and then they go away and they don't come back until the next fire. So it appears that this particular fungi is, is mycorrhizal with the trees. They're always there and they're just waiting for the right mm, circumstances to pop. And well, what are they? What are the right circumstances? Well, or, or maybe the real question is why do they pop after a fire? I'll give you a couple theories. I think it's, you know, a, it's a mystery in science right now. Um, um, one, one theory says that uh, after a fire, there's extra minerals and ash in the soil and it leaches down and it triggers these guys to fruit. Um, maybe, maybe so. I, I don't know. I, I think it's weird. Sometimes you'll find them in a fire, but not with fresh ash around them. So I, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, some people say the fire kills so much of the uh, existing um uh, competitors that it opens up a space for these mushrooms to burst. Maybe that's the case. Um, uh, another one says that uh, these, they, they live with the trees and their, their host has just died. And because their host died, they're like, oh my gosh, my host died. I need to fruit so I can, you know, spread the spores because uh, I'm going to die soon. Um, maybe that's why they do it. I, I don't know. I, I have a theory that it's those things all help plus one more. I think when the host dies, the, the mushroom turns from a, what would you call it? A mycorrhizal to a, a saprophobic mushroom. Uh, meaning that, that it goes from like living was with the tree in a, in a real nice relationship to now eating that dead wood, eating those roots and, and, and taking that extra nutrition and maybe the the minerals that are in the soil afterwards. And maybe there's less competition in the woods because uh, uh, in, in the, in the ground because things have died and, and all these factors roll into one and now it's living off those tree roots and, and blooming. That's what I think is going on. Uh, saprophobic. Yep. Thank you, Patrick. Um, so, so, you know, it's still a bit of a mystery, but, um, I've seen that, that, um, they, they definitely have the have to have the right kind of trees and, and they won't necessarily come up, um, uh, when the trees are dead, they may or they may not. So it's, it's still 
kind of a mystery. Now these these five species um, uh, of note, um, the first one especially is is number one on the list, Morchella tomentosa, is actually the last one that fruits in the cycle of the of the fire morels. Um, we call that one sometimes the fuzzy foot. Um, uh, some people call it a gray morel. Um, what else do we call it? Uh, tomentosa. Uh, it's a really neat one, and and the reason it's neat is is it, it comes up several weeks after the other ones have come up, and it's a massive mushroom. It is they they get really big. They're really thick. They have like a double wall inside of them. So if you fill your basket with these other ones, these sextillatas or eximias or exuberants. Your basket is kind of light when it's full. You fill it with the tomatosis and walk out of the woods and your basket is pounds heavier with the same, what looks like the same quantity of mushrooms. So these guys are heavy. They're thick. They have a really, in terms of eating, and I think there was a question about eating these morels. Do they taste as well? In terms of eating, it has a wonderful meaty texture. It's really thick. Now, uh, some people say uh, burn morels do not taste as good. Um, um, I'm not, I don't know if I have the most refined palate and, uh, I have a, a, a little secret no, it's not a secret anymore. I am like totally allergic to morels. So I eat them and I throw up. Um, that's what happens. And yeah, I, I cook them fine. That's not what it is. They're, they're actually morels and I cook them fine. I've, I've, I've struggled with this over the years and I've thrown up more than once from eating them. Um, so I have, a, I've gotten to the point where I don't really enjoy eating them, but, um, uh, my impression is they, they really are quite, quite delicious. Um, I, I think the one morale that stands out to me is not tasting as good as, is the landscape morale. The one that people try to cultivate and grow maybe in, in Asia. Um, maybe that's kind of a insipid tasting morale. These are quite delicious and full of flavor. Um, like, like any other morel. I think the danger is they can be dirty because you pick them in a burn. So that, that can be a bit of a turnoff. So uh, uh, normally the, the, the two, number two and three, the sex salata and eczemia, those pop up first in the burn followed by number four, the exuberance. And maybe this fifth one, the real question mark, I'm not sure if that's a fire morel is Brunea. And then the final one is the tomentosa in the, in the order of, of them. Uh, popping up in, in the woods. So we're going to see those five species when we're out hunting burn morels. Um, okay. And by the way, number two and three, sextillata and eczemia are, are impossible to tell apart. Very, very difficult unless you have a DNA sequencer handy. Um, they're, they're, they're hard to tell uh, which ones are which. Um, so those are the, those are the specific species and you won't find these anywhere else. You're not going to find them, uh, back to the question. What about a burn and a prescribed burn in Michigan? Um, you might find morels there, but they're not going to be one of these five species, which are the big kind of burn morels. Um, okay. So, uh, that's kind of my overall morel introduction. Now I want to talk about strategy and like, hey, how do you go find these? And here, here's really the question. Maybe some of you want to kind of chat about this. Have any of you done this? Are you interested in maybe this spring coming out west and looking for burn morels? Is that, is that something you want to do? Uh, by the way, I would, I would encourage you to. It's really not hard. Um, it's a lot of fun to come out here. The burns are uh, visually quite interesting to hunt. They're, they're, they're a fascinating place to be. Um, and it's kind of a fun scene. Uh, to do it in. And there's just a ton of mushrooms. So we got one hunter. Yes, Catherine. Yeah. So I, first of all, I just want to say I encourage you to do it. Um, this is probably going to be a good year because it's just the, the amount of 
places that have burned. But that said, every year seems to be a good year for the last eight years we've been doing it. There's never been a shortage of, of land to hunt, freshly burned land. The real problem is are you getting the right weather? Um, so I see a few of you are interested. Big, big kind of picture advice would be watch the weather. Um, what you're really looking for are, are places that are getting rained on once a week for several weeks in a row, if not maybe more. That regular rain, they, I guarantee you, you're going to get a lot of morels. The only reason you don't find them, assuming you're going to the right place, which I'm going to show you how to go. Um, the only reason you don't find them is because you come out after a week of no rain when it's been kind of droughty. And so the second piece of advice is if possible, drive. Um, you're going to need a lot of dehydrators with you. You're going to need a lot of way to like store morels. And if possible, you want to be able to like be foot loose. You might look at the maps and go, hey, it's been raining really well in Northwest Idaho. I'm going to go there and hunt those burns this year. Or maybe it's happening in Washington or Oregon or California or Arizona or Colorado. I don't know. But that, that's if you're able to, that's a good way to go. I feel like if you have to pick though, Oregon is the, the probably for me, the epicenter, um, uh, the easiest to get around and has the most, the kind of really high quality trees that we're looking for. So now we're going to talk about where um, now, I have a map of Colorado. I don't think I want to do it this way. Um, I couldn't put a map of the West here. So I'm just going to pop open a map of the West here for you all to look at. And the, the, the burns, the burn morels, technically, um, they actually technically will start over here. And so we've got the Black Hills here in South Dakota. I think technically um, uh, you're going to find them here. Uh, it's going to be a, maybe a little tougher, but they do grow there. Um, and then we're going to come down here to Colorado and you've got all this forest in Colorado that goes down into New Mexico. And all of these, all of this forest here uh, is going to, is going to be conifer trees um, down here in Arizona. I'll zoom in a little bit. You've got the Grand Canyon right here and you've got the North Rim and the South Rim. Both of those are excellent spots to hunt. And down here out of Flagstaff, you've got these, these big forests that run all the way down south and east which are, that are excellent. Um, then you hit the uh, reservation in here, so you can't really hunt there. But theoretically, you could follow these all the way down into New Mexico. I'll back out of that a little bit. Over here in California, starting from the south, the burn morels are going to be all the way down here. Here's Los Angeles. Oh, here's Bakersfield. Here's Sequoia National Forest. Now, you can't hunt in a national park. Um, but this this mountain range is Sierra Nevada's all the way up this range are going to be are going to be uh, burn morel territory. Um, and then you're going to come up here to Oregon and you've got the Cascade Range right here, as well as I think these are called the Blue Mountains that, that head over to the east. These are excellent. We hunt these every year. Uh, this area in here is very nice. As you go north, you're going to look to the east of Seattle and in the Cascades up in here. Uh, there's, there's a lot of dry desert here. We'll skip over that. This area in here, uh, uh, east north of Spokane and then east into Idaho um, is, is going to just be uh, uh, excellent territory. I guess Idaho's down here. Um, um, so you can, you can follow all the way down here, whereas uh, Boise's right here. So anything like north and east of Boise through here is also just big conifer forests. So that's all really good land. And that's, that's kind of generally the area. Uh, I really love the Idaho area. I love all uh, the Cascades over here in Oregon. Uh, areas you may want to avoid. 
uh, are the coast. Now, uh, uh, all the way up here from the Olympic Peninsula, all the way down this coastal range, you can follow it all the way down into California. And I, I think they, they grow there and you can find them there, but they're not going to be as abundant. And I, I think the reason why is they like the cold. They like someplace that freezes hard over the winter and gets some snow. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe the conifer trees aren't quite right. Um, but I'm going to say if, if you're going to like go hunt burn morels, I would avoid the coast. I would come into the next mountain range, the Cascades and the Sierras and avoid these coastal mountains for the best chance of success. Okay. So hopefully that works for everybody. No questions on that. Okay. Um, now let's see what else we got on the where. Um, now uh, to narrow this down, I, I'm usually looking at um, four maps four types of maps and I'm focusing on first year burns. So the morels will, the burn morels will, will pop up with the, the most abundance in the first year after a burn. So all the burns that happen this summer and this fall will be going off next spring. Now they will go off in year two. Uh, we, we hunt second year burns as well. However, it's a little more hit and miss and probably not as epic as a first year burn. But if, if they're convenient, we will stop and hit them. And I would say we, we get skunked in them more often than not. However, we're also probably going when the conditions aren't perfect. Um, we're usually when the conditions are really good, we're at a first year burn anyways. So um, you can definitely visit second year burns and even third year burns, but you, you would expect your, your harvest to go down. Um, however, you can still fill a basket. We hit a, a second year burn last year in Oregon and um, did really well. And, and it was a lot of fun. There was nobody ever hunts them. They're totally one of the advantages. Nobody ever hunts them. You have them all to yourself. Now there is one or two interesting theories about um, uh, uh, first and second year burns. And I see Finn, you got a North to South movement. Yeah. Let's talk about that in just a second. I definitely want to answer that question. Um, one theory is that if the morels don't go off in year one because of a drought, then year two, they will go off quite abundantly if the conditions are right. So for instance, in Colorado, we had several nice fires this year that were going to be good for hunting morels, but no morels showed themselves. There were no burn morels because we had a really dry summer. It was awful. So there's a good chance those burns that would have been this summer's hunting will be good next summer because they didn't go off. The second uh, theory is that that last one, that really desirable morel, the Morcella tomentosa that comes up after the other ones do, um, also does well in the second year. That's an interesting theory. I've not been able to confirm or, or, or deny that theory or prove it, I should say. Uh, but a, a lot of people talk about going to second year burns and finding that Morcella tomentosa. Um, so when, I, when we study the maps, we're looking for first year burns. Um, and there's a lot of websites that have burn perimeters. Um, if you can find them, there's a ton. I'll, I'll show you the real problem is there's too many burns. Um, the next thing we look at to big picture. So, and I'm Finn, I'm going to get to your question. I promise about the movement of them um, is, is when you're burn morel hunting, it's different than other types of hunting. This is not, first of all, we make maps, we, we share them with people, we tell people where we go. There's no like secrets here. Cause like, hey, I went to the Cal Fire. I'm gonna show you exactly where we raked in like buckets of morels last year, but who cares? Uh, they're burns, they, they change every year. They're public information. These are not like secret spots. 
so you can totally share them and, and, and not have the normal kind of morale weirdness about secret spots. It doesn't really work that way with burn morels. So what you end up doing is, is really kind of uh, doing armchair research in the winter. And you're using digital maps to find where you're going to go. And so the way I want to break the next segment of the presentation down is I want to talk about how to locate the burns on maps during the winter. And then we're going to talk about strategically, once you find your burns, how do you pick where to go and when? And then we're going to talk about when you're on site, how do you find the right location? So Finn, you're going to, where this north-south question, we're going to kind of get to after I talk about the digital maps. So we're, we're looking at four types of maps here, okay? Um, we're looking at uh, um, public land maps. Uh, we want to we want to target burns that are in um, forests, national forests specifically. Uh, you're going to want to uh, watch out. There's a lot of burns in, in Indian reservations. Um, you don't want to go there. That's bad news, and it's not cool. Um, there's a lot of burns in wilderness areas that have pretty strict rules against picking in them. Um, you're gonna to wanna to avoid those. And um, also sometimes state land you can't pick on depending on the state. For instance, in Colorado, it's totally against the law to pick mushrooms on state forests. Um, what you're looking for are, are public lands that are national forests. So that, that's, that's like the first kind of slice of the map. The second slice we're gonna look at is we're gonna look at um, uh, um, satellite maps and we're gonna look for trees. And you wanna find burns that, that burn through dense stands of trees. Um, now out here out west, most of those trees are gonna be are gonna be conifer trees, which is what we're after. We especially loved mixed conifer. Um, it seems like the, um, the forests that are just one type of tree don't do as well. Now you might get huge amounts of mushrooms in them. But they're also kind of risky because if you're in the maybe not the right kind of tree, as opposed to a mixed forest where there's mixed conifers are in, you, you might not find anything in a pure pine forest or a you know a lodgepole pine or a ponderosa pine or something like that. So we're looking hard at satellite maps and we're looking for he as the heaviest tree cover possible. We want we want to see really good trees. Um, so you're looking for public land. You're looking for. Uh, uh, on this, and then you're looking at satellites. The next thing you're looking at is going to be uh, access points. You want to have a map that is going to show you uh, the roads because a lot of these fires are, are difficult to get into. And um, if you're not strategic about and deciding where you're going to go, you're going to try to get there and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, it's a 10 mile bushwhack to even get to the fire. And that, that doesn't work. You need to find burns that are accessible by road. Um, and yeah, Lisa, Google Maps, they are not up to date. And I'm going to talk about the maps I use in a, in a sec uh, uh, for those. And we'll go look at some samples. Um, the fourth thing you're going to want to have is elevation. Uh, elevation is pretty important. And when you look at the elevation of, of burns, you're also looking at aspects and you're looking at steepness. So that's why we, anytime I'm examining burns, there's almost four maps and four steps I got to go through to find my spot. So I'm going to pull up uh, a sample here of one of mine here. Um, this is our site here. I'm logged in right now. And these are our burn maps. And we organize them by year so that if you know, you can pick your state like Oregon, which we'll look at Oregon and you can pick your years. You can pick 2018, 20, you know, three, three years of burns. So if you want to look at older burns, you can. And I'm going to start with this uh, all burns map. And that's what this is. And, and this is kind of the first problem here. 
Um, this is just a, a, a standard uh, Google uh, hybrid map. And the real problem is there's so many fires that if you decide you're going to go, go kind of burn hunting is, is you got to figure out like, okay, which one of these pins am I going to target? Um, now what I do then is this is the all map, but what I do after that is um, I take, I take it and I eliminate uh, all the burns that are in private property and don't have trees. And now we're less left with this. These are all the burns that are publicly accessible and they have trees. So they're not like in the desert. And I divide those into A, B, and C. And I'm just here to tell you, just pay attention to the A's. Um, the B's are there in case you happen to be near that area and it's convenient to go to. But what you really want are, are just the top burns. So last year, these are the, this is this year, this is the 2020 map. So these are 2019 burns. Um, I got about seven, about eight fires here, nine fires um, that were good high quality burns ready to go. And I think the one, maybe we'll look at this one. This is the Cal fire. I ranked that an A plus. Um, so let's zoom in on that. Here it is. Now this fire here is 9,700 acres. So it's plenty big. There were, there were Dozens, if not hundreds, of people picking this, but 97 acres is a uh, 9,700 acres is a is a pretty good fire. That said, there's there's multiple fires around the west this year that are over 100,000 acres. Um, I don't know how many, but I'm gonna guess six or eight or ten at least. Um, um, and I got a little information about the fire in here, and I have the elevation range in here. So uh, Finn, you to kind of talk about this, and, and this, is, this is a good map because it has the elevation lines in it. And um, the, way the, the way they work are they don't really move north to south. Um, generally speaking, they will. Uh, generally speaking, California is going to fruit before Washington, maybe two weeks. Um, but generally, uh, or specifically, they move up in elevation. So uh, 5,000 feet, is pretty high out, out here in Oregon. Um, that that's uh, uh, we're usually around Memorial Day. We're usually hunting around 4,500 feet. So this is kind of a, a slightly later season fire. We might want to be hitting this in early June, depending on the year, because every year is different. Um, we hunted this one. Do you remember? It was after Memorial Day. Kristen, do you remember when that was? Must have been the first or second week of June, because what happened was we came out a little later this year because we didn't even know we were going to come because of all the COVID action. Um, then and Oregon opened up and we came out. Yeah, it might have been the second week of June, and that, that was perfect for this fire. But if we'd come out in mid-May, this fire would have been too early, Finn. We would have had to have been looking for um, in, in our maps in here. If I go back one, we would have won. I won't go back one right now. Um, let me go into here. We would have wanted to come in and find other burns, like maybe this one, the HK, started at 3,300 to 3,900 for this particular one here. And there were several. So depending on how early we are, we're looking at, at lower elevations and then going up as the season goes on. So this, this fire at 5,000 feet happened to be perfect. And it had a high elevation of 7,800. So that would have picked well all the way through June, um, and, and what you can do in a fire like this is start down here in this low section and you can work your way up as the, as the weeks progress. And by the time you get up to the top of the fire, 
um, you know, several weeks have gone by when it started down low. Um, the season is snow melt to snow melt generally. I don't know what you mean by that question, Hunter. Um, um, certainly with the burn morels, we, we never hunt around um, snow drifts. Um, they're always gone and pretty well gone. And there's like some grass growing and stuff. Um, now there are natural morels that, that grow or uh, below snow drifts uh, in the west but these tend to the burn morels tend to come up a couple weeks later than the natural morels all things being equal in the same habitat um so i don't know if that was your question hunter please please rephrase it if i didn't get an answer for you uh, but what we're looking at here is the google map and just from an access standpoint oh my gosh it's wonderful it's got this big road running down the side of the burn i like that I really like the way there's a lot of low, a lot of really flat territory in here that's easy to explore. Um, and then if you want, you can hike up and earn some of this because, you know, it's, it's about to get halfway up this fire is probably a 90 minute hike. Um, so I know like we spent a lot of time on this, this northern edge of this fire in here, um, exploring up into here. And I think we probably got, we got up into this spot right here. Uh, was about as high as we had to go when we were there for those first flushes. So we, we never even got up into this area. And, you know, I think the reality was by the time we walked up into here picking and we filled our baskets and came down, it was a, you know, four or five, six hour day at least. And we had, you know, arms tired from carrying the, the mushrooms home. Um, the months that hunting spans, the span, so we're going to, I'm going to show you some dates here, Hunter, in a minute. Uh, uh, it's the other kind of unique thing about the Western burn royal is they have a very long season so um, theoretically um, we're going to be looking at maybe late march for some early ones at lower elevations especially in in uh, california um, and then we're going to continue all the way through uh july uh, if the weather's good and august if the weather's good and even september if the weather holds now it's rare that out west we get those kind of rain patterns that are going to keep it going but i'll tell you a story in a minute where, where we've seen that happen um uh, we find the best time that we love to go to oregon is about memorial day weekend the week before and the week after is kind of our sweet spot um we have found that also uh They'll, they'll pop in the in the in the Oregon, California, Washington first, and then when you come out to and Idaho is a little higher elevation. It might be a week or two later as you kind of go west or east. It gets a, a little colder up in there. Um, now, as you come down into Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah area, uh, Wyoming, um, what what's going on there? I think is it's more deserty. So it's warmer, but what's really happened is the trees that we want, the really nice conifer trees, they're at 8,000 feet and higher. Um, and what we, I would say is at, you don't get the right conditions at 8,000 feet and probably until the first week of June on, a, on an average-ish year, maybe a week or, you know, it depends on the snowfall and, and, and the weather. But the, the, the further eastern states are going to come uh, a couple of weeks later, only because they're at higher elevations relative. So 4,500 feet in Oregon is probably about temperature wise is probably about the same as 65 or 7,000 feet in Colorado. But um, there's not the trees we want at 65 or seven in Colorado. We got to get up to eight in Colorado. So that's probably about the same as 5,500 in Oregon kind of time wise. Um, 
All right. Um, cool. So that's uh, one map. Let me bop out of this. So here's what we do on ours. Uh, next, we have our, and this is our, our website here. Uh, for It's a member-based website. And I mentioned it's $40 to join and you get all the maps that I've curated, uh, but you can get all those for free. Um, they're out on the internet. If you want to go find them, there's plenty of maps. And, and, and I, you know, spent a lot of time writing my notes in here about kind of where to go and ranking them. But I look at the satellite next, and this is going to be really important because we're going to zoom in here a little more. And we're going to see that the, these are pretty nice looking trees in here. They're pretty thick. They're, they're, they're pretty dense trees and it looks pretty good. Like this spot right here, you're not going to really find what you want here. There's not enough trees in here and here and here. Uh, they've been cut out. Maybe they're just, they're just not very big. Uh, likewise, right here, there's no trees and here it's Brown. They're not going to be in this stretch. So what we're always looking for are trying to find these really nice trees and, and Google makes it easy. The good news is uh, they haven't, they don't update their, their uh, uh, maps very often. So uh, when you're doing your research, like when I do my research this winter, I'm not seeing the burn. I see the perimeter like this, but you can't tell the burn happened because Google has not updated its maps. They take maybe a year to do. Um, so you don't actually see the burn in here. All you see are the old trees. Like over here, this is this is spectacular trees right here. These, these would be great to pick. Now this little spot right here is a, a lot of ground. I don't like that as much. Um, but I'm looking for trees next. And then I layer on the US Forest Service map on here. And this is where I really look at the elevation lines. And I like this because I know I can hunt this. Now, this middle part of the fire right here, and maybe down here, this edge, this is pretty steep. Um, to get to, to like we did, to work up this edge and work up in here and drop down this valley and back up, that was a pretty good little little uh, uh, creek right there. And we got up into here and we got down into this one. It was pretty good. And this was doable up in here. Um, but when you get up into this type here, you can't really walk that. It's pretty steep and, and it, it's hard to get up into up in here for that reason. Uh, it's hard to find an easy way up through here. It's pretty steep. So we're, we're paying a lot of attention to accessibility. Uh, these roads were not open to vehicles and you can't tell that, but this main road that ran along the whole length of the fire was, <clears throat> so, especially if you don't get around well, you, you would have liked this fire because this whole lower section was pretty flat and you could kind of get in there and hunt it. Now, Finn is asking, do the morels come up after logging disturbances as well? Yes, they absolutely do. Uh, um, there's a whole, that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother class, like how to find logged areas on, with digital resources and how to hunt them. Um, uh, they do. They, there's a lot of uh, uh, growth that happens in the logged areas. However, they are they are not burn morels. They are a different species, and that's is one of the interesting thing about a burn morel is if you log a forest, the burn morels don't pop. Those five species, like that tomentosa, you won't find. Um, if you burn a forest, those that's when the the burn morels come up, and the other ones don't. So literally, when you log it, it's a they're different species of morels that are that are showing up. Um, although all that said, that's kind of my experience. Um, I don't know that there's enough science for me to actually say that probably with the, with the, the assurity that I just said it. So there's probably needs a little grain of salt that it's possible. Some of those are burn rails, but, um, uh, everything that I've learned is indicated they're they're not, uh, but there's a lot of morels in, in logging areas. 
Um, all right, so this is where I then look at the accessibility on, on the Forest Service map. And to back up to, uh, I think maybe it was Lisa that mentioned it earlier about the Google Maps. I have found that I really rely on the, the Forest Service digital maps here uh, much more than the, excuse me, the Google Maps. The Google Maps have, uh, are pretty tricky on the roads. They are sometimes accurate and they're sometimes not. Um, I find that if I try to navigate into burns and through generally national forest areas in the West using Google Maps, there's roads that aren't on the map and then the road you're on stops is just not really accurate. Um, I would recommend a U.S. Forest Service map. Uh, the National Geographic maps are also quite good. The digital or the print versions are, are good um, if you have them. Uh, um, uh, also better than the Google map. I do, I use the Google map all the time. I love the satellite map. I don't think there's anything better than the Google satellite map uh, for looking um, at the trees. So this now concludes my little armchair research section. Uh, this is what we're doing in the winter. We're out, we're finding these fires. We're making a list of the ones that are maybe based on the season where we wanna go. So come May, we're ready to hit the road. And, and we have a, a list of fires or areas that we want to go that we, we feel pretty confident about. Um, I got a couple resources in here. We have our burn maps at modernforager.com. Gaia GPS is an online mapping service that also translates into your phone pretty nicely um, that you can uh, uh, use. And Onyx is another mapping service. Both of those are going to have good uh, forest service maps, good uh, um, satellite maps, and they also will have some burns in them as well. Some burn data usually gets in. The problem, I, I, they often don't put the burn data in until like May. So while it's in there, if you're doing your research in February and March, it's often not ready in there yet for you. And the other problem is just to go back to this, this picture here is they have in like Gaia and, and, and Onyx and these mapping sites, they have like 15 or 20 years of fire data. I don't know how much. So it's like the whole state's burned and you, you get cross-eyed trying to find last year's burns in those maps. I don't want to, I don't want to mix up two year and one year burns. I only want to focus on last year burns if I can. So, um, so Hunter, you said I'm unclear on how you know where burns are happening. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta Google it. You gotta find the maps. You gotta like, find last year's burns and, and it takes a lot of digging um, to do. And that's what I do all winter. I spend, I mean, with all the fires this year, it's, it's gonna take hundreds and hundreds of hours for me to go through them all, eliminate the 90% of the fires that I don't think are good, only to get down to the A fires that have the trees that are accessible, um, they're on public land. I'm gonna throw one more thing in there that makes an A fire an A fire. And that is we love big fires. And the reason is um, smaller fires, anything, like, let's say under 100 or 150 acres, there's a lot of five or 10 acre fires even that look really good on the map. And they're like, they would be A fires. The problem is um, when you go to a small fire, you don't have a lot of terrain available. And if you can get to say a 100,000 acre fire, you can pick three, four or five spots and you can explore them and you're gonna really hit the jackpot in there. 
if you go to a smaller burn, you may totally hit the jackpot too, but it's risky. If you don't hit it, you got to get back in your car and you just lost a whole day. So usually when we are feeling really confident and we've gone to a big fire and we've really like, oh, they're out, they're really good. Then we might go into some of the smaller fires, more boutique fires or what I call them. Um, and, and hit those and people aren't usually in them and, and they're really fun. However, they're kind of risky to go to initially. So we like the big fires where we can drive in and you'll see a lot of other hunters in them. Uh, who cares? Uh, there's, you know, plenty of morels. Even if you walk right behind a commercial picker, you're still going to find them. And if you just get a little creative, look around in some spots, you'll find like some virgin territory that nobody's been in in the last 48 hours and there'll, there'll be a lot of mushrooms in them. So I, I would tell you, don't worry about the people. Um, if you are worried about people, although there's so much acreage, here's a couple tips. Um, people usually avoid the steeps. So if you really want to get in and it's like a competitive area and a lot of people have been picking it, you can tell there's footprints. Um, you can tell people there's a lot of cars in the parking areas. Um, try to focus on maybe some steeper areas. That's, that's a good way to kind of get into them. And mushrooms love steep areas. We try not to hunt them because people they're I don't like them. They're hard to hunt in They're They're more tiring. Um, but, but the mushrooms love it. So, so go for some steeper areas and, and just try walking in a few miles that, that can make a difference too. Um, you know, get a little bit off the beaten path is a good way to go. Now, here's the funny thing. Here's a, the opposite advice. You might also try looking right by the car like go to the most obvious places and walk through them and you can probably do pretty well and sometimes hit jackpots there because a lot of times the commercial guys the big hunters they're like strapping up with their backpacks and they're coming in at dawn and they're hitting the trail and they're walking for 90 minutes before they start looking and they walk by a lot of the lower ones and they keep walking further and further and further and as the days go on nobody's looking maybe right down here or maybe just right on the other side of that trail over there so, so sometimes you can do really well, really close to the trail in a competitive environment. Um, but even in a competitive environment, there's so many morels out there. Nobody, nobody picks them all. Um, and they come up in these, in these uh, waves. So we're going to look at that, I think, next. Oh, yeah, we got some elevation guidelines. We talked about that a little bit. Here was the Colorado versions uh, where... where uh, in May, we're at a pretty low elevation. In June, we're, we're kind of getting into the 8,000s and heading up. In July, 9,500 or higher if the, if the uh, uh, you know, weather, weather's right. By the way, when you look at the pictures, here's another thing. Pay, I, I, I always look at this, like these pictures. I always pay attention to the, to the pine needles. Um, and you can see um, the needles in here. Um, this is going to be, uh, I believe a lodgepole pine forest. That's what those look like to me. Um, often if we have other pictures like there, look at that one. Those are tomentosas. Those are those late ones. It's a beautiful little circle of fuzzy feet. Um, this picture I believe was taken about August 10th, um, at 10,100 feet. Um, it was above 10,000 and you can see in this case, uh, those aren't really pine needles. Those are, uh, those are going to be firs and spruces. And I believe they're almost all uh, spruces, actually. That's, I think, an Engelman spruce needle in there. So I, I often pay attention to the, to the needles that are around the mushrooms to help kind of learn where people are picking. Um, by the way, probably pine trees are, I don't want to say my least favorite. They're often mixed in. Um, I really love that mixed fir spruce. Uh, forest with some pine mixed in. Um, 
here we go here. You've got uh, firs and spruce leaves. I, I like this one, uh, soil temps. You guys do this, uh, I believe in the Midwest a lot. You stick thermometers into the soil, right? Um, and you pay attention to the soil temp, um, kind of as a, as a helpful guideline. Uh, I do that too. I, I, I've done it for a while and I, I don't know if it's really worth it. Um, I've got two pictures right here. The left picture was taken on June 6th. Um, and those were the very first morels that we found in this particular burn in Colorado. And look at the soil temperature, it's 57.8, that's really warm. The next picture was taken June 21st. And, and the elevation, by the way, was, was actually lower on the right. So it's not an elevation thing. Um, that mushroom was coming in at 48 degrees in that spot. And that's a really big difference. So the problem with taking soil temps is, um, um, first of all, look at my thermometer. The one on the right is not pushed as far into the ground. If I pushed it an inch deeper, that temperature is going to drop quite a few degrees. Um, so you got to push it in the same amount every time. Um, and depending on the, the aspect, is it north or south facing? Is it in the shade? It's going to throw different temperatures out. Um, in this case, I think what happened was, uh, and you can see some mushrooms in the background back there, kind of popping off. There's quite a few in this area. Uh, I think what happened, this is the same burn, is we had a really, really big rain, maybe like June uh, 16th, maybe five days before this picture, like a big, big rain, and it dumped maybe an inch or two, and it was cold. And I think what happened is, is, is usually, uh, so after a rain, um, burn morels will, will typically pop up pretty quick, uh, 24 or 48 hours. You should see a lot of growth after a rain. And, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to go out 24 hours afterwards. And, and you can often pick, you know, maybe not full size ones, but pretty good size ones in two days. They can easily be full grown, um, after a rain. But in this case, they took five days. Uh, to get to get full grown. And what happened was this was a really cold rain. And so I think it just, it dropped the soil temps so radically after this big rain that there were no mushrooms for like four days, which is really unusual. We're like, oh, what's going on? You know, there's no mushrooms. And by the way, burns are very dangerous right after rain. So don't go into a burn during a heavy rain or right afterwards, the, the, the uh, ash becomes really slippery and it's quite dangerous. Um, you, you can really have a bad fall in there. Um, um, but in this case, the soil temp's pretty low, but the mushrooms are popping up again. So that was June 21st. And those were what, June 6th? That's 15 days apart uh, between these two mushrooms. Um, so I do look at soil temp. Um, so there we go. Here's another picture. Uh, this is that same burn. Um, and this picture, let me see if I, I think I have the date here. Uh, this is June 30th. So, um, same, same burn. So here, here's, here's the kind of range. Um, uh, these mushrooms come in, in several species and we call them flushes and they will come, um, two, three, four, five flushes. Well, each one will follow the next. So they will, they will kind of happen successively. And often the later flushes seem to maybe be a little bigger, uh, maybe because it's warmer, but sometimes that first flush can be absolutely epic. And we usually chase the first flush. It's just kind of what we're into. Um, um, but in this case, in the Colorado one, we went to the same area for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I, I wrote it down here. I'm just going to look and read it. Um, week one was June 7th. And we started finding them in sunnier locations 
at about between eight and 8,500 feet. Um, and unusually sunny locations. Usually we're looking in shady spots, but the sun had warmed up the soil. So they came out, the early ones started coming out. By the way, they were also really dirty. Um, when you pick mushrooms that are in the sun, they also are getting rained on and the rain lands in the burn and hits the ashes, hits the ashy ground and splashes ash onto the mushrooms. So for the first week, we were picking really nasty, dirty mushrooms with ash in them and they were, they were hard to clean, Ugh. Uh, but we still picked them because, you know, that's what you do. Um, now, the second week in the exact same uh, elevation range, they... Um, uh, and they were started moving up after that, but we stayed in the same spot. They, they were still out in the second week and they were, but they were in shadier spots and they were getting, they were turning nicer. They were cleaner and they were a little bigger. Um, and they were that first flush. Um, then in week three at the same elevation, the second flush happened. So when you go into a shady spot, um, June 21st, and you would see older really old mushrooms that were the first flush that maybe nobody picked or there weren't many people around. So we, we didn't pick them and they were clearly old. They were two weeks old and maybe almost gone, but there were some fresh ones coming up. Um, so that would be uh, uh, a full two weeks after we found the first ones. Um, and then that, that continued for at least another week. And then in week four, there was a third flush at the same elevation. Um, and, uh, and we kept picking and then we were still at the same elevation. There was a fourth flush on uh, July 5th. Um, so now we're a full month into it. And that's when we started those, picking those really big uh, tomentosa mushrooms, the big, the big boys on uh, July 5th. Um, and that was at 8,500 feet. And then something happened. Um, I think we went on vacation. We, let, we had to leave town. Uh, so I don't know what happened for two weeks. Um, uh, but we came back on, um, uh, the seventh week. So that would have been the, uh, last very, very end of July, very early August, um, uh, mostly the end of July. And we went to 10,200 feet. So we went up about, uh, 1800 feet higher up into the woods. And that's where we started picking the, the third flush. And, um, now that was after that was. I think after these, um, so these were picked around the 21st or the, the end of June. Um, and so we went up to 10,200 feet, went higher, started picking more and that continued into weeks eight and nine. And we, we wrapped up on August 13th with our last pick on that fire. Um, but at that point, um, they clearly wanted to keep coming, but it was dry. Like we hadn't had a rain in a week. So we were picking big, big, monster ones bigger bigger than this bigger than these but they were just kind of on their last legs and um, apparently some friends told us they went back in September and uh, there was a little more rain and some more popped up and they kept picking them I think they really kind of we maybe caught the end of it there in the middle of August um, but, but clearly these guys will follow it up and you can keep picking them if you move up in elevation and if it keeps raining um, so that, that's kind of fun to, to be able to move up and down the mountain and, and, and find these guys. Um, so here's that last, that, that late one, that tomentosa, I cut it in half so you can see it. This is the same species of mushroom, um, uh, picked nearby each other. 
Um, I just took a nice picture. You can see this, the second from the left is the youngest one. It's still all tight. It hasn't opened up. Um, there's a short squat one here that's a little older. This is uh, the, the one on the far left would be the second oldest. It's starting to open up. And notice the, the, the um, stem, it goes from black. It's starting to, to lighten up. And over here, this third one, the uh, uh, stem has now started to turn blonde colored and pretty soon it will look white like the other stems. But if you look close, this tomentosa has fuzzy feet. It has uh, little little hairs uh, on the stem. And if you, you almost need a, um, a, whatchamacallit, a magnifying glass, I'm trying to think what the other one's called, to, to look closely to see all the tiny little hairs. And in the, all these ridges up and down here, if you look close, uh, is that called sepatose maybe? Uh, there's all little hairs on the ridges too, if you look close. So that's the tomentosa. That's the one that we crave the most and, and love to get that, that big, heavy, heavy mushroom. Uh, and here's some more of those. And now they're a little older. You can see this one big one in the middle. Uh, um, it's, it's really opened up here more and the stem is turned a uh, blonde color, but uh, when it was young, that would have been a black stem and it would have been more of a gray or even black color. In your, uh, when it was small. Okay, uh, here they are. This is the same mushroom. This is uh, very small young ones. They start out really black like this with really black stems before they, they change their colors. Um, so other, other things we do to kind of uh, extend the season or, or find the right thing, we, we pay attention to aspect quite a bit. Um, now, uh, for us, it's like north, south, east, west. Um, my advice, uh, my, my favorite is I love an east facing slope. Um, it seems to be a little cooler and moister than a west facing slope, but on an east facing slope and everything's a slope when you're burn morel hunting, there's no like hardly any flat territory. You're almost always in uh, something with an aspect. There's gonna be all the gullies and rivulets and all the kind of permutations in the land. And those are all north and south facing. So if you think about it, if you're looking at a slope facing east, when it drops down into like a creek bed, that creek bed has a north face and a south face. And um, that, those are my favorite places to look because you can get a lot of different temperature and moisture variations on an eastern slope. So that's usually where I go first. Um, the, the reality is out in the west is, is south facing slopes are potentially good to pick. However, we're almost always wanting more moisture. And when there's not enough moisture, the south facing slopes are, are don't produce as well because they get dry so much faster because of the sun. So we, we, we try to look for those. And, and when I'm out scouting and going to places for the first time, I usually avoid south facing flushes or, or aspects. Um, we already talked about the multiple flushes in a lot of detail. So now let's look at uh, some maps and, and, and get a little more like, hey, we're, we're, we're heading out west. It's it's Memorial Day weekend, and I just pulled into this burn. This is called the Desolation Burn. It was in uh, uh, in Oregon, and this was one we went to, I think, three years ago. And it was uh, on the highway, on the way through. We're like, oh, it doesn't look great. Let's check it out. We pulled in. We spent about 90 minutes, and we probably got a gallon each of morels, and it wasn't quite good enough. I mean, that's that was not what we wanted. And if you look at this picture, uh, we drove up this road right here. We drove up 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 into here. We drove up, we got up about to here before we quit. Uh, and the problem is if you look close at this picture, 
Um, the trees, uh, and we didn't really realize it. Not now it's obvious on satellite. There's a lot of gaps between the trees and you can see the ground. And this, this area had maybe been logged or had maybe gone through a prescribed burn in the past. So um, th there, there wasn't enough heavy tree cover and the fire that did go through really didn't kill the trees a lot. Didn't like create mayhem. It kind of burned through quickly, um, but it didn't cause a lot of damage. And, and that's what a prescribed burn is like. And they could be good. You can find morels in them, but, but it seems like if they're not, if it's not a proper forest fire running through a big forest and causing um, mayhem and, and death amongst the, the trees and the plants and the bushes, that they don't, you don't get the same kind of flushes. So in retrospect and looking at a map, try to avoid these, these spots where you can see all the ground in between the trees. Now look at this one. This burn is in Colorado. And, and here, even if you zoom in, these are, uh, in fact, this is the burn where I've shown all the pictures from. Um, super dense trees in here, heavy green. You can't see the ground in here. Like this, this area in here would be the first place I'd wanna look if I could. Uh, this was this was the higher elevation part of the burn, but th this is really what you're looking for on a map: are, are lots of trees. And 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 uh, if you're going to go head for a burn, this is where you want to head. In this case, we were able to drive into this road, and it was a fun fire because you got to about here, and the road ended, but it kept going all along the bottom of the burn here, and there was another road that went up into the burn, like this, all the way up into here. The problem is there were these roads were gated on and off. So as you kind of learn the fire, we would come and park here. And what we would do is we would ride our bikes all the way down into here. And nobody was picking this whole section. Like we never saw anybody. We had it to ourselves. Um, uh, so that was kind of fun. And, and bikes can be handy in burns because often there's a gate, but there's, if there's three more miles of road up there, you can just bike right up to the end. And we, we use e-bikes. Um, and, and get to some really some really fun territory. Um, then yeah, you're allowed to ride the bikes past the gate. Uh, you just can't ride a uh, can't drive your vehicle past there. Um, so look look for those trees. Uh, here's a close up. Those are the trees you want. Pretty thick. Uh, they look really nice. So so there's if you zoomed in, that's that that forest I was just showing you. Uh, now, this is a Colorado map. I don't think we need to get too much into it, but a lot of states have these maps where you can see the types of, of, of uh, trees that are happening in the state. Um, in this one, we've got the spruce fir and we've got the mixed uh, conifer. That's what all this green is right here. So, so we're often looking for the green area. The aspen is the red or the red color. We don't want aspen, that's a deciduous tree. And while you may find morels there, that's not strategy, that, that's luck. Um, uh, we also have out in the front range, a lot of these ponderosa pine forests. And we also have the lodgepole pine, which color is that? That's the dark blue. In here, there's some lodgepole pine forests. And we tend to avoid those. Uh, they also don't excite us as much as the, the, other, the other conifer trees. Unless they're mixed together, then they're great. Uh, we don't need to look at too many, but a lot of states have these maps. So I do encourage you if you're kind of looking to, to investigate tree types and make sure you can get in there, this is what you want to look for. But that said, out west, anytime you're going to get into some higher elevation mountains, um, they're almost always just the kind of conifers you want. Uh, now we got a quick checklist here. Um, 
uh, we've talked about already, you're going to want to make sure that you can hunt in it. It's national forest. You want to make sure it's accessible. You want to pay attention to the elevation and look for the destination fires first and the boutique fire second. And you want to find the heavy tree structure. That's the critical piece a lot of people miss. Um, I got some more map ideas here. Uh, this, you know, you could always draw your fire perimeters uh, onto paper maps to get there if you don't have that kind of uh, uh, to go navigation type systems or the GPS systems uh, to get you there. Uh, here, here's a good tip. We're going to talk about permits in a minute. Um, but check the website, check the Forest Service website before you go for two reasons. Uh, the first one is going to be permits. We're going to talk about that in a sec. The second reason is going to be um, they will usually uh, out here in the West will be pretty good about putting closures on there. So go check it out and they'll tell you this road's closed or that road's closed before you drive out. Um, you're going to want to make sure you've got, you know, dialed in that the, the roads are, are reported as open in the Forest Service. It has happened before where we haven't checked and you get out there and you can't get to the burn and it's a road closed. And as soon as you go to the website, it says right there, it's closed. Um, now, um, uh, they love rain. They love warmth. Those are the two things you're looking for. I, I don't care too much about warmth. Um, now, if it's really cold, like if you have to like put on a coat to go hunting and wear a hat and gloves it's too cold uh, but usually the nights are cold anyways up there and they're you know uh, uh you just don't want like bitter cold weather that's really going to shut them down but rain is the most important thing if you can look up maps and see rain coming uh, over a two to four week period before you go that's ideal um uh, for for the mushrooms to pop um uh, I recommend you have several options pre-scouted and planned. Um, uh, it, it, it's pretty common that you're going to go to either one place, the second place, or the third place. This is what I'm going to do today. Maybe two burns. I've got it all planned out. And you go to the first burn and you can't get there. Something's going on. Um, a road is closed or whatever. Or maybe you get there and it doesn't look good. So I always I always have a, a backup plan and often a backup to my backup plan when I'm when, when I'm kind of heading out and it really pays off. Um, I recommend too, as part of your plan that you, you're ready to hit a number of elevations and aspects. We, we have in our plans when we go out, like we're gonna go here, here and here, and each one represents higher or lower elevations and also different aspects. Um, and we, we will typically get out and, and we'll hop out of the car and we're gonna, okay, we have 20 minutes. We're gonna like hit this spot. We're gonna check it out. And we're gonna get back and we're gonna go to the next one. We're, we're happy to do that and, and keep looking until we find the, the right kind of spot. Um, now, what you wanna look for when you get there is gonna be this idea of structure and shade and moonscapes are bad. So here's a moonscape is what we call it. Uh, often you get into a burn and you're driving through it and it's it, like, this is burned really hard. The trees are completely dead. The ground is completely ash. There's no uh, pine needles on the ground. There's no green on the ground and there's no pine needles left in the trees. And what you really have here is a sun-baked situation. Now you might find morels in here, um, especially if it's been rainy, they're probably, probably gonna be covered in ash. Uh, maybe not, maybe they popped up and they're fresh and nice, um, but it's rare. It's not, it's, it's not the place you wanna check out uh, as, a, as a primary spot. Maybe if it's really early in the season, um, there's more sun in here, so you might stand a better chance of finding your first morels here, but they're still gonna be gritty and ashy. Now this looks a little bit better and you can see the difference. The ground has some uh, fallen pine needles on it. 
There's some shade coming down from the trees, but there's still a lot of gaps between the trees. There's not a lot of shade and it's really not a good place to hunt. We're gonna walk right past this too. This is what's gonna excite us. When we're driving down the road, looking through the burn, when we see dense trees, we see a lot of brown on the ground where all the pine needles have fallen down in here. And by the way, they're, they're all through here. There's a lot of morels in this picture. We see a lot of shade up on top. We see live trees mixed in with de dead trees. That's great too. Um, th this is what we're after right here. This is gonna be a really prime spot. Here's another picture, a similar one. You got some big trees, they're still alive. They've got some, some green going on, some brown from dead needles. So when the brown needles are in the tree, their tree's probably dead, but it didn't get killed like torched by the fire. They just didn't survive the winter. And those are all gonna fall down this year. And, and these are often the best, that tree that's like mm, struggling. It's not completely torched. It may live, but it's probably not. And often when we're in this, see these trees, we're actually looking under these little trees in here are often where there's a lot of mushrooms as well. So the trees don't have to be big. Um, you do need typically big trees around you, but they will just as likely grow under the, the little stressed out dead trees as well. It's very shady under those trees. And especially when it's dry, you can probably see, I think there's a, a morel right down in here. I think there's a, there's, there's, I know that they're all in this picture too. I took this because the train was perfect and we were finding quite a few morels. Uh, we, we like this too. So avoid the really open areas. I think that's probably the biggest beginner's mistake when they, if they get to the right place and there's, you know, morels in the area and, and it's been raining, they, they tend to go to places that are um, too sunny and not enough structure and shade like this. So, so look for these spots. All right, we're going to get ready to wrap up here with a few of our, our favorite things. And I think I think we got permits. We got to talk about permits too. I thought I thought that was in here, but uh, it might be an upcoming slide. So let's talk about permits first. Um, every in the West, um, you you typically need a permit to hunt burn morels. Um, and he, here's the truth of the matter: Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Um, every Forest Service and every state has its own rules. So uh, what some one person knows about the Willamette National Forest is gonna be a lot different than the Ochoco National Forest. And the guy that hunts the Willamette is gonna tell you, oh, you don't need a permit as long as you have under a gallon on you at any one time, whatever, blah, blah. Um, you need to do research it yourself. You need to look at the forest you're going to. And if you're going to multiple forests on your trip, you're gonna need a different permit for each one. Occasionally they share permits, two or three will band together, but that's the exception more than the rule. Um, and, and you need to show up at a forest service office, a ranger's office, uh, Monday through Friday. They often close at 4.30 or five, get there at least a half hour before they close. They're typically closed on Saturdays and Sundays, and they will typically give you a free permit. Um, and they'll tell you the rules. Um, they won't give you maps. If you do, you're lucky. They won't give you tips. If you do, you're lucky. Uh, they will tell you what roads are closed if you ask. So that's a really good piece of advice to say, I'm going to this fire. Um, are there any closures I should know about? They would love to tell you about the closures, but that's about all. Um, some of the Forest Service Rangers are really nice and happy and friendly and others are surly and they're not happy to see you. So you never know. Um, we often buy a commercial permit at these and they're typically $20 and they typically last for a week 
it just depends. And the reason we buy a commercial permit is in some forests, the free permits limit you to a certain amount of possession, or they want you to cut your mushrooms in half, which is no fun. Because um, when you cut up morel in half, it has a, uh, 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 you can't, you can't commercially sell it. Um, and we feel like, oh my gosh, let's just spend the $20. We can get as much as we want uh, quantity wise. And we don't have to mess with cutting them in half. Cause you know, you're walking out with easily a five gallon bucket of morels after a day of this, if, if not two or three or four of them, you know, if, it, if it's epic. Um, and you got to have your permit on you when you're in the woods at all times. And uh, if you happen to see a ranger, they can ask you for your permit. And if you don't have it, they're going to write you a big fat ticket. That's kind of the reality. We have never been asked for a permit um, ever. We've never gotten a ticket. We always have our permits. Um, so you can get away without having a permit, but you risk getting a ticket uh, if you do. Um, they will, if you do pick in a national park, that by the way is totally bad news. Uh, people do it in Crater Lake and they, they get, they, they will, they will, confiscate your mushrooms and they will write you a much bigger ticket and um and it's a problem so keep that in mind it's 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 all things being you know equal it's probably worse to pick somewhere where you can't pick than it is to pick somewhere where you can without a permit um, the national parks have have serious law enforcement uh personnel and uh they they protect the national parks and if they see you walking around with a mushroom bag um you're you're in a you're going to be in trouble and the fine, Catherine, is different in every every park. They're going to have they're going to have different types of of fines for you. So a national park uh, could have several hundred dollars of fine, but a forest service might have a, a fifty or a hundred dollar fine. But they're all they're all going to be different. And I, I think it probably depends on the mood the ranger is into uh, when they when they catch you. So um, yeah, get your permits. I mean, it's worth it. Um, uh, uh, we, we try to plan our trips so that we arrive. We almost always try to pick an A plus A fire. We want to arrive Friday in the afternoon. We want to get a permit. We will plan on usually spending the weekend there. And then we might move on to some different ones, but we know we, we can only get the permit on the, on the uh, weekend or during the week. Now, th this, this year was actually a little different. You didn't have to have permits in these fires because the, the ranger stations were closed due to COVID. Uh, I don't think that'll continue next year. Gosh, I hope not. Um, um, okay, so some of our favorite things to take, I, I would, I would urge uh, walkie talkies, a uh, small, cheap walkie talkie is a lifesaver, especially if you're, you're hunting with somebody, obviously if you're by yourself, it doesn't do any good, but it's easy, uh, and the, the wind blows a little bit, or you get a hill between you, or there's a, a stream or a river you can't hear, you get out of earshot with people, it's danger, uh, walkie talkies are so nice and then you're not those people in the woods yelling all the time you can just be like i found a bunch over here and you don't have to give it all away so walkie talkies are great i would urge you and you you'll know what i mean travel with wet wipes like baby wipes and hand lotion uh your hands get filthy and they have those like spores on them and they're like um they eat your pads off your fingers and the first thing you do when you get out of the woods is you're going to want to uh get those handy wipes and clean your hands off really good because they hurt otherwise same thing after you then you get home and you clean your mushrooms um you're going to want to have the same things and you're going to want lotion it's very it can be very hard on your your hands um uh, I, I would even put on latex gloves when I get home before I clean through my mushrooms just to give my hands a break. Because after a couple days, you, you really do. You literally wear the, the, the pads off your fingers from that, the spores of the morels. Um, 
that's how you know you got a lot of mushrooms when you when you you, you don't have fingerprints anymore. Uh, we have them go with hanging baskets, like like uh, uh, oh there there's the hands. That's what it looks like. Um, after a day of picking, your clothes get black all over them. All, you get filthy. So wear, wear your old clothes. Um, we travel uh, with these hanging baskets when we're camping, or you know maybe even a, even in a hotel. If you're staying at a hotel, <clears throat> it's a good idea to to put let dry your, your mushrooms in these for a day or two. They lose a lot of their moisture and they dehydrate well afterwards. It's a good way to store them. By the way, out West, we have spring porcinis. So we often do a lot of spring porcini hunting and they, they start out at a, um, um, a lower elevation than the morels do, uh, but not much. And, and they are, they are fabulous and they can be epic out here too. If you, if you want to kind of mix it up while you're out here, we, we, we do a lot of spring porcini hunting in between morel days. Uh, but that hanging basket is super handy. Um, also, if you are staying in a hotel, you can travel with your own little dehydrator, buy it when you get here. Please remember, do not dry your morels in the same room you're in. Put them in a lock your bathroom, shut your bathroom door and do them in there, do them on a patio or do them outside. Don't leave them in your car to dry. They, they release a lot of spores and those spores are very bad for you and they, they cover everything. If you, if you lay them out in your car and you think it's like clever or that my car is hot and dry, your car is gonna be coated with spores. It's gonna be awful. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, a chainsaw, if you have one, is a good safety device because trees fall in the woods. A proper mushroom knife with a brush is, is well worth it to clean the you know clean them off as you pick them. You want to you're going to want to have a mushroom bag that's sturdy that holds a, a large quantity. Um, uh, you're going to want to have an extra bag and then an extra bag for your extra bag. Um, I almost always have like my, my main mushroom bag and then I'll have in my backpack uh, several cloth shopping bags or, or mesh bags so that I can fill those up. And, and really, if I want to you know, leave the woods with 20 or 30 or 50 pounds of mushrooms, I can because, uh, you know, when, when they hit big, you're going to you're going to fill every bag you have um, guaranteed. You just you got to stop picking because you can't carry more out of the woods. That's that's how big it gets when when you when you get into one of these spots. Uh, I shouldn't say one of these spots when you get in one of these burns and uh, the weather has been good is, is when it just happens like crazy. I love a shoulder strap. So I, my arms get tired from carrying bags. A lot of people do uh, five gallon buckets. They will drill holes in the bottom, um, which is not for the spores to release, by the way. Um, that's a, maybe dirt falls through. Um, I like mat mesh, not, not cause I, I don't think spores make a difference at this point in the game. Um, I'm doing it because it allows dirt to fall out of the mushrooms and I get home with cleaner mushrooms and, and I do with a five gallon bucket, but a five gallon bucket is a, is a, a pretty popular thing in the woods. Um, the other reason I don't like them is they, they, on a steeper hill, you set it down and they fall over and then you've got five gallons of morels to repick. Um, but a lot of people hunt with buckets. Um, all right. I think we're there. Okay, here, here's something you may not have seen. This is a little bug, I don't know the name. You'll find these on uh, morels in the West, fire, burn morels. Uh, one nice thing about burn morels, uh, oh, Finn, the hanging basket. Um, I got that on Amazon. It's a herb drying basket, a word of warning, Finn. Get the smaller ones because you can put a lot in there and they hold them. If you get a big one, you put a lot in there and they sag out and break. So you can put more in a smaller one because it holds the weight. That's more of the issue than having a big one. So I would go with, with two of the small ones if I were you. Uh, but this bug right here, um, the good news is uh, uh, we've never found bugs in our morels. They don't like 
eat the morels. There's not like ants in them. There's not larvae in them, uh, unless they're old. You know, that, I'm not. I'm talking about fresh morels. However, some bugs make their home on the morels, and these are a good example. These little guys right here. Um, if you find them, you, usually that means the morels are four or five, eight days old. Um, often that means go higher in elevation to find some fresher ones. Um, uh, but these you got to blow off and pick off and, you know, they're a pain, but they're not like eating the morale. They're, they're living in it. And there's, a, I think, a big distinction between bugs that are actively eating your mushrooms and putting larvae in them that you turn around and eat and bugs that you just have to shake off and keep picking. So you will see these little guys right here. They look like maybe sesame seeds um, in there. And, and we don't like to see them because it does mean we, we're like three days too late. Uh, and maybe we want to go higher in elevation if we can. Uh, but that said, if, if that's all you got, you pick them, uh, you blow them off. The, you, if, you put them in your, if you put them in a hanging basket, all those bugs will generally crawl, crawl out um, of the mushrooms. So they're, they're not the worst thing in the world. Um, we don't wash our mushrooms in salt water. Eh, never. Um, and the reason is uh, burn morels don't have bugs in them. So you don't have to like get the bugs out with salt water. Um, if the morels are really ashy, uh, we will uh, wash them in water before we dehydrate them. And the secret there is you wash them and then you got to like air dry them. You got to get them back to their normal level of dryness before you put them in the dehydrator and you're going to have a better product. I would rather not wash them. I'd rather have a nice brush and clean them up and keep them clean as I go than, than have to actually wash the mushrooms. Uh, but sometimes you got to if they're dirty. Oh, here's the permits page. Uh, I already said all this. So, uh, you know, get, get your permits. Uh, here's a picture of Crater Lake, uh, 4th of July. Um, it was a good 4th of July, right? That's 4th of July weekend. They seized 234 pounds of mushrooms. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that was 2016. They seized it from 13 different pickers. So each picker I had on average, whatever, for 234 pounds. Um, and they put them all on, this is a giant blanket. Um, and I wish I knew what they did with them after that. Hopefully they did something yummy with them, but they may have just thrown them out too. Cause these were, you know, these were illegally picked in a national park and you can't do that. Uh, and almost no national parks allow you to pick mushrooms. So get that permit. Uh, finally, we're going to end on safety. Um, I think the real danger in a, in a, in a, uh, the most common danger that you're going to see is a, uh, a hidden hole. These, these trees burn, the, the fire follows the trees down to the roots, and then it follows the roots, and they'll burn for weeks and weeks and weeks underground. And you're walking along, and you step into one of those, you're going to potentially hurt your knee pretty bad or ankle. So I suggest you be uh, careful walking around of the holes. You're also going to want to watch out for mud, uh, flash floods, washed out roads. Wind scares us. When the wind blows, we get out because there's a lot of dead trees and we don't want to, you know, have a tree fall on us. Uh, that's not the way we want to go. Uh, you guys know uh, what are morels and not. Will you check on that? Is that a tsunami warning? There's an alarm going off here. We feel like it might be a tsunami warning. It's kind of new for us. I don't have my phone. Um, these are not morels. I think you guys know that. Uh, do you use nav? Yeah, uh, Patrick, we, I use Gaia GPS. I'm a big fan of that. Um, over anything else, I think Onyx would be a next second best or pretty good. But I would use, I use Gaia GPS. If you watch, I think we're going to do a class on that this winter. 
Uh, I really like it. Uh, Catherine, how do you identify the holes? You just got to watch. They're always visible. They're not like covered up. Um, but if you're looking one way at a morels down here and you, you're not looking where you walk, you can step right into one of them and they might be a foot deep and you're going to get hurt. Um, so you just got to watch for them. Um, I have stepped in them before and I fortunately never, never hurt myself, but, uh, you will see occasionally around burns, these, uh, gyrometra, uh, keep in mind our gyrometra are different than yours in the Midwest. Um, hopefully you're savvy enough about mushrooms to know that, you know, these can be dangerous for you if you don't know what they are, or they can be yummy. Um, uh, I'll let you discern the difference between the two of them. However, we do not, we do not pick them. Um, nor, uh, nor do we pick these, although people do, this is also not a morel. Uh, and again, hopefully you can tell the difference. I don't think it's my job to help you learn how to ID a morel here in the Illinois Mycological Society. Uh, but you got some etiquette issues here. Uh, steer clear of other people's pick lines is a big one. So you see somebody working, look which direction they're going and don't, don't, don't cut in front of them and pick their line. Uh, don't leave any trash, please. Um, if you, if you need to go to the bathroom in the woods, bury it. Uh, that's a big thing. A lot of people don't do that. And, you know, you, we have dogs uh, that get into it. It's not cool. Um, only pick where permitted, please. There's a lot of private property. A good map will tell you what's private and what's not. There's plenty of public property. So you, you just got to respect private property. Um, look, you, you know, only jerks pick private property. Don't, don't be that guy. Um, you know, share your catch. People are usually nice in the woods. We always say hi. Almost people are almost always friendly. They'll tell you where they're from and what their story is. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, talk to people, share with people. There's a lot of bounty. It's always nice, you know, take someone new if you can. Um, and other than that, maybe we'll see you out there. Uh, here's a fun picture of a bird nest we saw on an old burnout tree with blue eggs in it. Those are our e-bikes that we take up into the woods. Um, I would encourage you to uh, sign up for our email list, stay in touch. We love talking about it. We love talking about where we're going and what we did and what we find and didn't find. And we're pretty open about it. Like there's no secret here, the burn morels. So feel free to stay in touch about it. And just as a last blog, we'd love to have you try our new book. Um, uh, it's got 115 recipes of um, 15 mushrooms and uh, we're pretty proud of it. Uh, it's only uh, a week old. It just came out last week. So, uh, so, so it's kind of cool. Um, any questions here before we wrap up everybody? Thanks Eve. That was nice. Thank you. Um, uh, after that, I hopefully some of you feel uh, empowered to head out West next spring and, and spend a week chasing these guys. It is, it is fun. It will change your life and you're going to want to do it every year. And all your friends will be jealous when you come home with like 50 gallons of dried morels. <laughs> I, my, I blame my wife. She might have a little bit of a hoarding problem. We give, a, we give a lot of them away. Uh, we have a lot of family. We, we feed a lot of people with them. Uh, I love to cook for other people too. I, I, I make a lot of them for other people, um, but I, I don't eat them. Um, I get sick. Yeah. I can't eat them. And you know, a lot of it too, is we don't, we're not commercial pickers. You know, look at our, look at our bags there. You know, we, we picked that many in the back of the, you can see it on the back of the, the bike there, what we picked that day. Um, that was fun. You know, a commercial picker would have to come out with, with way more than we did. So I think a lot of it for us is we're always like studying and learning and going to new fires. And um, 
you know, we don't, we don't have to pick that many. So for us, it's, it's all about fun. When it stops being fun in the woods, we're ready to, to head home because we don't need the mushrooms. Oh, uh, the first half of August next summer is when NAMA, yep, NAMA is going to happen in Colorado um, the week before Telluride. Um, now, last year, we were slaying morels the week before Telluride, and at the Telluride Mushroom Festival, they took a big group out to a burn who also got a lot of mushrooms. So it's a good time if you're going to come to Colorado. It's unusual that we have that amount of rain that time of year. Maybe it'll happen this year, um, but it's a good week to do NAMA and uh, Estes Park, and then uh, the Telluride Mushroom Festival happens the following week, and it's prime season. Uh, we have really good porcinis in Colorado, um, uh, epic, really epic porcinis um, that typically go off that time of year, as well as chanterelles and lots of other fun ones. Yeah, we're in this place and there's these signs that say like, you know, entering tsunami zone and leaving tsunami zone. And there's like maps on where to go when the alarms, when the alarms go, which we just heard this sound like a tornado alarm. We're in Reedsport, Oregon. What was it, Kristen? We don't know what it was. It ended just a test. There was a big earthquake in Alaska. Maybe, maybe they decided to test the alarms because of it here. Yeah. And we're, we're out here picking up Matsutake is the, the big, the big mushroom here right now and porcinis and chanterelles and many others, but uh, Matsutake's are kind of the, the, the fun mushroom here right now. Thank you, Gary. And Susan, thank you. Heidi, Ron, thank you. All right, I think we're probably good then. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Yeah, a mushroom, especially like preservation. I, I have a, a, I, love, I can talk about an hour about all these crazy ways to preserve mm -hmm. mushrooms. Uh, we're, we're pretty passionate about uh, uh, overpicking and then enjoying them for the next year. And we never throw mushrooms away. I know. It's overpicking because you got to clean them all. I'm like, oh, we overpicked. As we spend hours cleaning <laughs> that overpicking means I got to clean a lot of mushrooms, by the way. We have a very full. Picture. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, they all come home and get cleaned and preserved. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone.